Hello and welcome to Making Media Now, the Filmmakers Collaborative podcast. I'm your host, Michael Acevedo. Joining me on this episode is writer-director Nicola Rose. Nicola is an award-winning New York City-based filmmaker whose work is gathering acclaim on the festival circuit. In 2021, Nicola directed her first feature-length film, Goodbye Petrushka, a coming-of-age comedy about a starry-eyed, awkward woman with a big heart who meets a down-on-his-luck figure skater in Paris. As this delightful film progresses, the two change each other's lives in unexpected ways. Here's the trailer, and I swear that's not me doing the VO for it. Meet Claire. She's a bit of an oddball. A dreamer. You need to go to Paris. And a romantic. Excuse me, you dropped this receipt from uh, Babysitting Paris? Oh my god, Claire, you love him. But in her dream city of Paris, nothing goes as planned. Whether she's battling bureaucrats... Qui? Pourquoi? No, madame. Nannying for the Parisian family from hell. I'm Nadege Saint-Pierre. This is my mother, Katia. Are you depressed, Claire? Elodie and Angélique. <laughs> We're falling in love. Je vais nous inscrire au festival. Prenez-moi. Prenez-moi. Twice. Do you have a boyfriend? Claire's stint in Paris is filled with faux pas. Mademoiselle. Yes, you, the puppet person. We will let our children run around and scream. <laughs> and just a bit of magic. Life is far too short, and true passion is far too rare. So you'll be Patricia for me? Goodbye, Petrushka is now available on Amazon Prime, Tubi, and other streaming services. Nicola also directed, produced, and or wrote the shorts Creative Block, In the Land of Moonstones, Gabrielle, and Biffin' Me, all of which have won numerous awards on the Indie Film Festival circuit. Making Media Now is sponsored by Filmmakers Collaborative, a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting media makers from across the creative spectrum, from providing fiscal sponsorship to presenting an array of informative and educational programs. Filmmakers Collaborative supports creatives at every step in their journey. To learn more, visit filmmakerscollab.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please follow and share. And now on to my conversation with Nicola Rose. Hello, Nicola Rose. Welcome to Making Media Now. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to be chatting with you about your new film, Goodbye Petruska, which is just getting all kinds of rave reviews on the festival circuit. Congratulations on that. Thank you so much. It's a it's just a wonderful film. It's funny, it's engaging, and it's really uh, the craftsmanship of every aspect of the film really comes through. And it was it was just really fun to watch. Uh, so uh, I know that you have been really busy promoting the film. And as I said, it's uh, it's been getting it's been getting great reception at various uh, film festivals. So I do appreciate you making the time. So for the benefit of our listeners, uh, share with us what the log line of Goodbye Petruska is. 
Yes, of course. So the logline or the tagline, which the, the fun one or the factual one? Let's let's not get fun yet. Let's go okay. with the facts. Then we'll get into sure. the fun. So basically, the logline is that a young woman, a college girl, goes from America to France and back to America again, like a boomerang, but not without screwing up a whole lot along the way. Yeah. <laughs> OK, very intriguing. Tell me about the uh, the inspiration, you know, as I as I watched the film and then also I'd made myself a little bit familiar with your biography. Yes. I saw some hints, perhaps, of autobiography. What? Uh, I'm what? just saying. Yeah, no, of course. <laughs> Talk me, talk to me about the inspiration. But of course. Uh, so uh, I have to say the movie is only based on my life insofar as if anything happened in my life that was interesting, then I put it into the movie and everything else I just made up and told completely vicious lies about for the purpose of entertainment. I was a graduate student uh, in Paris. I was for a while an undergraduate student in Paris and I was an American. So there was a certain amount of... Um, cultural shock that came from that. Although uh, I, I adapted to France uh, rather more quickly than the character does in the movie. She really never quite has an easy time of it, um, which is obviously just a lot more interesting. And there mm -hmm. are things that are really difficult, no matter you know how culturally fluent you are or where you are coming from. There are things that are kind of always different when you go to a new country and the customs are different and the behaviors are different and the ways of speaking are different, not just the language, but even just like the ways of speaking and, you know, talking about food, talking about your day, uh, you know, going through your day, they're just different. And there's so much that you bump up against in a sort of jagged, um, unexpected way. Mm -hmm. And this character, um, you know, she loves France, but she loves the idea of France and she doesn't really have any clue what she's in for. So it's like, Oh, Oh, okay. This is, this is what France is. Uh, all right. And, um, essentially she, um, she's a fish out of water everywhere she goes. She's a fish out of water back home and she's a fish out of water there, but she learns an awful lot more about herself by being across the pond, falling in love twice across the pond. And, uh, essentially I don't think it is anything re remotely approaching a spoiler to say she's looking for somebody this whole time and what she really has to learn. And I mean, this is not just marketing speak. She has to learn it is that the person she's looking for is her. Yeah. yeah. It's not, it's not something that she comes to easily. It's not something that I think some of us ever come to. I'm still struggling with it. I know a lot of people are. Yeah. I'm pretty certain it's a lifelong process. Tell me about it. <laughs> so, uh, which came together first and maybe it wasn't, you know, a clearly linear process, which came together first for you did like the, the broad outline of the plot or the vitality of these characters? Cause the characters that you create are all very, they're all very unique, uh, in, in the Ew. sense that they are, they're independent of each other, which is great. Cause sometimes, you know, you'll watch a movie and it feels like, well, all of these characters are just in service of moving this plot along, but they all have their little kind of quirks and their little hints of personality, even characters that are in for just a scene or two, which, yeah. you know, such credit to you as a writer for that. Thank you. Oh my gosh. And some people are just, uh, so vibrant. Uh, in real life that, you know, that they're not going to lose that vibrancy on the page. There's no way they could. They already have so much excess vibrance. You're just kind of distilling it onto. So everybody in that movie to 
to answer your question sort of approximately, everybody in that movie is based on a real person in one way or another. There's nobody in that movie that is not in some way a real person. Um, just some of them in a very liberal way, some of them in a more um, concrete way. And uh, I have to say the broad outline of the plot, which is really very simple, came to me uh, at pretty much the same time as the characters. The characters were hitting me first because they were people I knew, but the broad outline was kind of right there along with them. It's like, well, if there's Claire at the center of things, who is sort of the eye of the storm, mm -hmm. you know, I know what she's doing in order to meet all these people. She's going to a new place and she's coming back to an old place, but she's not the same Claire anymore. Um, somebody pointed out in a, in a review the other day, um, it was it was somebody who didn't care for the movie, actually, who posted a review. It was interesting. It was somebody posting a review on Amazon and saying, you know, I didn't really um, I shouldn't admit I look at these, but, you know, I see random stuff. And yeah. uh, I look at the it's I think every filmmaker out there, no matter how big looks at their movies, especially little, be tough not to. How do you not? But like what I thought what I thought was really interesting about the review is that uh, the, the person was saying Claire's character is inconsistent. She starts out so um, innocent and off on her own planet, total goof. And then by the end, she's the voice of reason. And she, I would never say she's the voice of reason like ever, but, um, by the end she's grown up and she's the voice of reason. It's so inconsistent. Well, yes, yes it is because she grew up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. What do you want? Inconsistency is sort of the definition of growing up. Inconsistency is the definition of humanity. There are so many people <laughs> My God, inconsistent. Yes, you're absolutely right. Inconsistency equals growing up. But inconsistency is also just daily life there. You know, there are so many things that humans do, uh, just the ways that people behave that you would say, oh, my God, if I wrote that down for a character, somebody would say that's completely out of character. You don't know what you're writing. It's not yeah. the same character anymore. Oh, my God, that character really jumped the shark after season, you know, season two. And um, actually people in, you know, if you pay attention to people in real life, my God, we all jump the shark somewhere mid first season. We don't do, we're never consistent about anything. Yes, we exactly. Are, we expect way more from our characters than we could ever expect from ourselves. That's quite true. So <laughs> speaking of gr growing up, give me a sense of uh, your own background, your own growing up background. Where oh, are you I never from? Grew up. You never grew up. Okay. Well, good. I don't, I don't, I don't recommend it. Um, it's overrated. <laughs> Where are you from and what uh, what attracted you to the creative arts? Sure. I um, I was born in Connecticut outside New York, and I'm now a New Yorker in that I've lived here for the past uh, 15 years on and off and mm -hmm. don't even want to live here anymore, which tells you how much of a New Yorker I really am. It's when you don't like it. Uh, I, I still love it in some ways, but not um well, it's complicated between us, but anyway, so complicated relationship, me, New York. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, I grew up in Florida and, um, I lived in France, obviously for a couple big chunks mm -hmm. and I came back whenever, uh, whenever time and the, and my friends, uh, letting me crash on their couches permits me. And what about, what about your immersion or your exposure to, uh, oh, film and writing? And right. I know you, puppetry played not only a role in your film and your character's life, <laughs> but your life also. Forgot about that little parallel. So yes. And this, uh, this has been interesting. So you asked, I, I knew, I was like, he asked something else and I knew you did. Um, so when I, uh, I was a kid, uh, 
when I was a kid and, 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 and now, um, I don't know why I started with when I was a kid, my parents are artists. And okay. so I What's grew up medium? I, my both musicians, like originally, but okay. my dad kind of stepped sideways into cartooning. And now he's actually a professional cartoonist who is syndicated, uh, and distributed around the world. Oh, and, that's cool. Yeah. So What's I his name? Up, uh, his name is Brooke McEldowney and he does a, a, a comic strip called nine chickweed lane, okay. which is at, uh, gocomics.com slash nine number nine all right we get a plug in for dad that's the best oh no definitely go look you might have to go way back to kind of know what's going on in the current story because it's daily installments so it's like looking at one tiny puzzle piece that probably like goes back months i don't know where it is today but it's in the middle of a story you can be sure because he goes in for long story arcs so it's always in the middle of the story um rarely like a standalone Mm -hmm. um I could go on about that in the comic strip for ages, but, um, so back to, you know, kind of growing up, I grew up with people in the arts around me, literally in the house. And I don't think I, I don't think it occurred to me until, um, you know, I don't know, adolescence somewhere age 11, age 12, that people's parents actually did other things that like <laughs> adults did other stuff. There were other professions in the world. Um, I was very clueless. I was just like, oh, wait, so people do like finance. What is that? I, I, I mean, I still actually don't know, but at the time this was a revelation. Unfortunately, it didn't push me into finance. Um, otherwise we wouldn't be having this conversation, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) I'm trying to figure out if I've just been insulted. Anyway, continue. (laughs) No, no, I'm. I'm glad we're having this talk. Believe me, it's it's uh, it, it means that I took a, a more interesting path. Did you ever feel like that? Was there a um, uh, an expectation or a hope or an encouragement on your parents part to, um, you know, for you to pursue a career in the arts also? They were always 100 percent behind me in everything I did. Um, you know, the, my mom occasionally, to, to her credit, would say she would make attempts at saying, you know, it will be a lot easier for you if you go into something else. But mm-hmm. I didn't even I didn't hear it. And I did. I mean, I heard it, but I didn't hear it and I didn't understand it. So mm-hmm. it didn't truly mean anything to me. OK. And if it had, again, I think we wouldn't be having this conversation now necessarily. But the fact that I just didn't understand was what allowed me to make a bunch of short films later on and then make a feature film, which I understand 99% of filmmakers aren't able to go on to do. And now making a second feature actually, which I can you know get back into later, but um, no, certainly no discouragement and mm-hmm. plenty of, uh, plenty of very solid encouragement, but not never any pushing. I mean, there are people who truly, I see kids who, you know, kid actors because they do casting. I see kid actors who the the motivation is clearly, and I mean, clearly coming from um, the parents, like a dream that the parent never was able to achieve themselves Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. And now it's, you know, the kid may love it and want to do it, or at least that's what the kid has accepted, but it, really has to come from the person themselves the the yeah absolutely i don't think the arts are exclusive to that i mean if you if you look at 
even like youth sports sometimes you yes. sense that the kid is kind of a surrogate for the parents failed failed ambitions We're along those lines play baseball or whatever you see that all the sports are an even better example than acting because i or not just acting arts i think so many more people want to be athletes and yeah, yeah. understandably so it's something we all wish we could do but I would imagine coming from a household that, you know, was immersed in the arts, uh, you know, for somebody who had ambitions, for a child who had ambitions along those lines, it saves you the task of trying to essentially um, validate your ambition that, you know, you, you're you already uh, being raised in an environment that places a value uh, on the importance of the arts, whereas another scenario... Quite mm-hmm. understandably, a parent might be saying, no, go for the security, go for the tried and true path. Um, the Your interest in the arts is just too, you know, it's, it's too flighty. It's too it's too risky. Mm-hmm. What was your question again? I got lost thinking about family dynamics and <laughs> God knows what. <laughs> well, that was the question. It was it was around the family dynamics. Oh, right. Well, just that, um, you know, when I was 11 years old, uh, I'm. I'm sort of diving off into an anecdote that is going to seem unconnected, but it really isn't. Um, when I was 11 years old, um, my, I don't know if it was my, I'm sure it was my dad who played a recording of Maurice Ravel's, um, uh, comic opera, uh, which is French for, um, the child and the magic spells. And, um, it's a comic opera that basically it's a really, really simple short story by Colette that has to do with a kid who, uh, acts out, goes crazy, messes up his room and breaks everything. Cause he doesn't want to have to do his homework. And then all the objects come to life and start like menacing him. Like mm. his picture menaces him and his wallpaper people menace him and, 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 you know, try to get revenge on him for breaking them. And they all tell their stories. Like this is how we came to be. And now we're broken. And, and, um, at the end, um, obviously the kid comes out at the other end, uh, realizing kind of, you know, the, the, the weight of all that has made him into a different person. Sure. And it, we've gone through like 15 different tiny acts that are just filled with so much emotion and color and music. And it's, I, I'm not describing it wonderfully well, but that's because it, this is kind of my point. It really can't be described. Yeah. And so we put on that CD or record and, um, my sister and I became obsessed. We listened to it over and over and over and over. And we didn't realize like, we just, we were homeschooled. I don't know. We were living in our own little, we didn't realize that kids weren't going around doing this. We made a puppet show. This is how I got into puppets. I think, I don't know. I'm, I'm making that up. It's definitely not how I got into puppets. That was later. But, it sounds uh, good though. I like that. Yeah, Let's stick sure. with origin that. Story. Let's, yeah. Origin story done. Check. Um, so, <laughs> you know, so, uh, French, um, you know, um, French early 20th century, late 19th century comic opera and puppets. Uh, and I was 11, stuff like that. That was like the very most important kind of thing that there was in sort of the heart of my family and what we were like. Mm-hmm. And then later on, I was in high school and my mom, um, I was really sick. And and um, instead of doing like a traditional homeschool day, I, you know, I had the day off from school, uh, I had the day off. And uh, my mom put on the... Uh, it was a VHS at the time, of course, of the Royal Shakespeare Company's um, Nicholas Nickleby. So it's like all these actors up there performing Dickens for like a day and a half and they broke it up into, you know, 
one day one and day two and stuff like that. And like, it just never occurred to me that this wasn't what like the mainstream was into. This was just like, for me, this was mainstream and this was held up as, Oh my God, look what these people are doing. This is the best that humanity can aspire to in both those cases, the music and the, the, um, the play. And, you know, I, I, believed that and the thing is now that i've seen so much more of the world i still believe that that mm. that creating these things creating these characters creating this music this actually is the highest thing we can aspire to and i'm always just like working to be like one tiny fraction that good mm-hmm. can you think of any movies that were similarly uh inspirational to you when when you were younger Yes, it took me a little longer, but when I was in my early 20s, Moonrise Kingdom by Wes Anderson came out. Oh, yeah, brilliant. Yes. And I like leapt out of my, it, this was a what French people call a déclic. This was the click moment. Um, I leapt up out of my movie theater seat, I think, and just like hit the ceiling and went right through it, leaving like, you know, the shape of myself in a hole in the ceiling. It was like, oh my God, oh my God, you know, this is what I've wanted to do all this time. I didn't know movies like that existed. I, when I say movies like that, you know, the way he used music, the way right. he used the camera or way his cinematographer used the camera. Sure. And, ju- and just the, uh, the, um, the singular, singularly unique, uh, style that, that, that he employs. There's only one voice like that. And yeah. this is something that both inspires and scares me in my work or just like in life is that a lot of the time. I'm sort of drawn back to the thought where there's somebody I really want to either emulate or work with, or just somebody I admire. And I think, my God, there's literally only one of them. And that's terrifying because it's like, there is only one, there's nobody else. So we're so lucky that that person is, or was here. Absolutely. But but I also think what happens is, you know, I can't remember who said it, but I did hear one time and I liked it. It said, uh, every artist is a cannibal. Every poet is a thief. Oh, yeah. And 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 it's um, each other all the time. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, and, and it's, you know, what are you? You're, it's almost like, you know, you're building upon you're 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 advancing either a style or a technique or an approach that somebody else has, mm-hmm. uh, you know, has established. Sometimes it's just simply an homage to, you know, a particular way of, of filmmaking. Um, how did you uh, acquire the skills necessary to be a director? Uh, did I do that? I didn't. Know I did that. <laughs> the evidence uh, would say yes. Okay, cool. Well, awesome. Um, I didn't look at the evidence. So I got to go over that. But um, so <laughs> it, it's I, a pretty rock solid case. Awesome. Uh, well, I, I appreciate you. So what I, um, you know, I will say I learned by screwing up similar to how the character in Goodbye Petrushka learns by screwing up, uh, learns about life by screwing up. I learned about directing by screwing up. And the very first thing that I ever did, which I I am indebted to everybody who agreed to work on this with me, or I would not have been able to start. I made a tiny little web series called Callie and Izzy about uh, a young woman named Callie who was played by me because I was still acting back then. Uh, She had a puppet growing out of her hand and it was a disease. It was puppetitis B. Um, (laughs) Puppetitis B, um, which became a pandemic. I I, I wrote about COVID before the world knew about COVID. you know, um, puppetitis became a really contagious worldwide pandemic. This was in 2016. I wrote this. So like I was ahead of my time, man, and nobody appreciated it. Anyway. So, uh, puppetitis B was a thing and uh, a very real thing. 
Um, lost my train of thought, but anyway, the web, web series, yeah, yeah, the web series. So, uh, that was the first thing I made. I think I was paying people like 50 bucks a day to do that thing. And basically I just called all my most talented friends. I found a couple of cinematographers who are some of the most caring and talented cinematographers I've ever come across and said, will you please do this with me? And these people taught me so much about what I do. And then working, uh, fast forwarding through all the short films I did between now and then. So, you know, learning that actually you have to hire somebody to do post sound and no, it won't work if you don't. Right. And you know, all those little details got to do post sound. Yep. It actually does not work otherwise. Are you uh, a detail oriented person? Am I, uh, you know, it depends who you ask because there are well, some asking you. Yeah. Oh dear. All right. Oh, you asked the wrong person. Um, so Yes, but what I consider to be the important details are not necessarily what other people, there are some details I know now that I have to delegate. Sure. Which means that I won't be able necessarily to see through their, to see them through to fruition. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit about your writing process. Uh, for instance, the shooting script, yeah. how far away from or how close to the original script was it? It's remarkably close. Um, the I was looking at it the other day. I was like, my God, there's like five lines in this that are different. I'm amazed how on uh, how close we actually kind of got. You were talking about Goodbye Petrushka. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I guess the web series really didn't have shooting script. <laughs> um, the puppet improvised a lot, um, <laughs> as they will. So they do. And so um, I was looking at it the other day because my uh, producing partner, Tierney Borbor, who is one of these people who's taught me an immense amount about uh, what I do uh, in terms of logistics, in terms of, uh, you know, how to get people to fund your film and so forth. Um, And she came along and, um, you know, she gave one of the things that she's best at is giving really good um, dramaturgy notes. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, something needs to happen between point A and point B so that point C is more... um, uh, what's the word is it, it has a oh gratifying like it has a payoff is so it basically so that it justifies this thing happening and she'll say something and either I'll implement that or it will make me think of something else that I really need to implement and things like magically get better which I really appreciate about her um what I really enjoyed about the script was I, th- there were these great little you know couple of uh two three line exchanges that uh I really sensed some satire in there, uh, a little bit of hint of commentary around maybe class and even a little bit of political correctness. Um, So was that happening on a conscious level or is that just the way your humor comes through? Uh, I think it's a bit of both. And I think it's also due to the actor's excellent interpretation of things. Mm -hmm. But Yes, there were times that I knew I might get in trouble for something. And it's really been I mean, it's done with such a light touch that I haven't really gotten in any trouble. I've had a couple of people say, well, that was brave to do, you know, to make this or that comment. But I think most of them are in the eye of the beholder. You know, Mm -hmm. if you think I'm making fun of something, you can. Yes, you can see it. And you're probably correct. But you might not. be. There's there's a tiny uh, margin of ambiguity to some stuff, I guess. Um, But yes, uh, you know, there are some commentaries there that you not wouldn't necessarily even need to know are there. Stuff like, um, you know, when Claire goes and nannies for a rich family that um, has mm-hmm. their head, has its collective head up its ass in many ways. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, 
there there's a whole bunch of commentary there that has to do with uh, the ways certain families in the one percent um treat their staff and view their staff mm-hmm. and something that i've seen from the inside uh having nannied once upon a time a really long time ago um and if you don't know about that, then you just see a family behaving strangely, but they're so weird that you're just carried along with it. And, you know, I've had one or two people say, well, why would they behave that way? It's like, it's fine. They just, you know, if you haven't, if you haven't been in a house like that, then you just think, well, they're real mean and and it's okay to see it on that level too. Yeah. You know, you often hear the expression um, of, of directors getting a great performance from actors. And then other times you'll hear directors say, no, that was the actor that brought their their magic, their gift to the performance and the script. Um, where do you fall kind of on that continuum? Well, first of all, yes, 100 percent. It comes from the actor. There's no question you have to or your writer has to provide them a good script to set mm-hmm. them up to do that. It's very hard to do it with a bad script. Yeah. But I will say um, my job as a director and I learned this by example um, an actually negative example, which I can turn back around to or not, but I learned that what I have to do is make people, my actors, I'm speaking specifically of my actors. I have to make them feel as comfortable and happy and almost playful as possible, which isn't to say, Oh, we feel like we're not even at work. We feel like we're on vacation, but they need to feel at Liberty to do anything they want to do do within the boundaries of what the script tells them. In other words, if they come up with an interpretation, I want that to be an interpretation. You know, if they, they, let me put this differently. They have the chance. Therefore, if they're feeling at their most relaxed, their most calm, better than they've ever felt, if you will, Mm -hmm. they stand a chance to come up with an interpretation that they themselves didn't even see coming. And that's where you get the most inspired performances. Mm -hmm. And it, it, it is kind of like going through life with blinders on where you are so focused. You ever see a gymnast about to run down the beam uh, or about to run down the, you know, the path at the Olympics yep. um, or a figure skater before uh, they're about to, you know, skate. Um, and they have this look of focus in their eyes. That's just like almost murderous. It, it's like, it is so fierce. And although I don't need the actors to, you know, have that look in their eyes, because that's more of an outward manifestation. I need them to feel like that on the inside, not sure. that, that there is nothing, there is no sense of success. There is no sense of failure. There's only that there's only this sort of trail of fire inside your head and you're yeah. going to go down that trail. And so that's how I like to feel when I'm doing things that are important to me. Mm-hmm. That's how I have to feel. And, um, you know, I have a certain like ritual of things that I do before I say direct something or meet with somebody important or, you know, uh, there's a certain playlist I'll listen to. I'll go on a walk. I'll go on a run. I don't know what the actors do, but I need to set them up to feel that way. And then everything else comes from them. I I'm like a conductor. I'm up there, you know, orchestrating thing. I shouldn't say orchestrating. That's an, that's a, that's a composer. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm up there. Uh, you know, I'm bringing up one section sound and bringing down the other section sound. I'm saying, can you do this differently? I know how the whole thing is supposed to go, yeah. but as far as the actual instruments that comes from the instrumentalist, that doesn't come from me. I can't make them a better player. That's right. that. Yeah. Well, and, and also you kind of raise the bar a bit too, because I think that um, comedy 
is even more reliant on that that sort of like the timing and the relationship between the performers like you have many great scenes uh between uh between Claire the main protagonist in the film and her her best friend who is just sort of off the wall and kind of loony and but very very loving and she's just got some She's got great timing and 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 the relationship in their their scenes there there's just a great energy. Thank you so much for saying that. Comedy is the hardest damn thing to do on earth. Yeah. Um and those two so there is a little bit of outside help here in that they were already close friends before I cast them. Nice. However, I didn't know that. I cast one and then the other and uh, didn't put two and two together until somewhere into that process. So wait a minute, you guys are besties. You know each other. You know they, they weren't. Uh, they, they they were close friends. They weren't just oh yeah, we met at school. They did both go to Tisch. They both graduated from Tisch. Uh, you know fairly recently, but uh, they knew each other at drama school and became close. That's, so yeah, and that, that that comes across. There's definitely yeah. there's a seamlessness in in, in their communication. Um, so yeah, yeah. as if it weren't enough to to uh, to write the film, to direct the film, you edited the film. I did. Um, and was that the plan from the from the start? Not necessarily, but I will say it. It, it, it is a it is a an economical move. Yes, I still haven't paid my editor. She's still standing there, going, you know, rubbing <laughs> her fingers together. <laughs> yeah. That's going to happen. You know, I'm also, and I always checks people, in the mail. Checks, yeah, almost gotten lost. Um, I, I always tell people, I, um, you know, there are people who say don't tell people this, but I always do. I'm also one of the key investors in the film because mm-hmm. in America, in particular, things like this, you know, little indie comedies, little indie films of any kind, they're not going to get made without people believing in you at a high dollar amount. Now I can only provide a low dollar amount, Mm -hmm. but, uh, I believe in myself at a high dollar amount. Now that won't get me anywhere, but, um, I, you know, I invested in this personally because I believed and it, it is in the midst of playing out that that would come back to me with interest. And I, I wouldn't do that if I didn't believe in it. It's interesting. I was going to ask you uh, the type of uh, maybe advice you were getting in terms of whether it was from investors or maybe investors who were also uh, giving maybe marketing advice in the sense that your 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 film, um, you know, it, the, the protagonists are, are young people. Mm-hmm. So on on the surface, somebody might say, oh, this is going to be great for like a, you know, a Disney plus or a Nickelodeon or, or something of that nature. But you get into some pretty mature uh, subject areas also. Was there ever any concern around let's tone this down so it's more appetizing to a particular audience or let's crank it up in this area so it's more appetizing to a particular audience? There, that's a, a thoughtful question, and you would think that it that one of those sides would have come up. In mm-hmm. fact, no, and I'll 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 tell you why, and I'll also take a moment to say why I don't agree with this. The reason it never came up is because the film um, had to be entirely self made, entirely self produced, entirely done by private equity as far as the funding, because there are no names in it, and mm-hmm. you know, for listeners, yes. that means same actors, uh, it means famous actors, and. The entire movie industry, in terms of anything that is expected to make money and anything that gets greenlit to be made, it worships at the altar of the holy name, meaning name talent. Anybody that's known. I understand why this is. This is a purely financial thing. It makes sense. You have names, you get 
get interest. That actually makes perfect sense. And if the names are talented and you get them on on board your film, that's wonderful. There were a number of reasons, the youth of the cast and so forth, that we went the direction we went with this, making it really small. There are a number of logistical reasons that had to do with COVID and unions and uh, the time we shot it that had to do with, you know, um, Anyway, I love the way it is. I, mm-hmm. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't go back. I would simply, you know, I would simply go bigger and better every time I do something. I'll say that. But um, I do not agree with the concept of name talent being the only thing that makes something worthwhile. Because when we say that names are the only thing that has value, what we essentially do is we say nobody has a right to tell a story except the kind of people that are already so immensely powerful that they can bring in Hollywood names. Yeah. And what well, we fortunately also there are, no, I'm sorry. No, I did. We then marginalize 99% of everybody else. That's very true. Fortunately, however, there are also those stories and, and maybe they're few and far between uh, about films like yourself that mm-hmm. they, you know, they get on the radar of the right people at the right time or the, the critical mass of people at the right time. And and then your film will become the film that when people are seeing your, you know, your later work or the later work of your actors, they point to and say, oh, yeah, that was their first film or, yeah. that, you know, that was their first feature. I think I think to a movie like I think to a movie that just off the top of my head, like Winter Bone, oh, uh, yeah. mm-hmm. Jennifer Lawrence's first film and super under the radar, super independent. And yet, you know, obviously she wasn't a name, but certainly became one. Yeah. Tell me about it. That's, that's a, that's a name with a capital N that's a turbo name. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Now people go back and they look at that film and they say, Hey, that was really good. But there's this idea that names equals good. And I always tell people that when you go to LA and you start to say, Oh, I have a thing. And before you even, before you even finish saying that sentence, say who's attached, what's their value? Yeah. Yeah. That's the business part of the show. (laughs) I know, but we're, commingling things that shouldn't be commingled. I'm, I'm, I'm not a person who rarifies art and says, Oh, you can't make money with art. I think making money with art is a great idea. Absolutely. Um, You know, I'm, I'm, I, my European attitude only goes so far because the idea there is art is sacred. You don't make money with it. No, no, make money with it all you want. You should, but uh, we're not giving new people a chance and we have to be able to give new people a chance to be not just on the periphery of things, but absolutely at the dead center of things. Um, so I'm, yeah. I'm very wary so, of the name industry. So along those lines, as I as I mentioned at the uh, the start of our conversation, you you know your your film is getting some really great reception at various uh, film festivals. You had mentioned that it's it, is it available on Amazon Prime? Yes, it's it streaming. Okay. It's great. streaming on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's free. You just have to have Prime. It's free in the U.S. It's free in the U.K. Both on Prime, and then Wonderful. it's on Tubi in the U.S., Canada. Mexico, the UK, plus New Zealand and Australia. That's excellent. And, and then if, it's on Voodoo now, and I don't know where it's available on Voodoo, but check check in your local region. That's great that's to I know. Say. And and if folks want to uh, learn more about yourself and your other films, uh, yeah. what's the best place that they should go to on the digital universe? On the digital universe. So uh, I have an Instagram on the digital universe, which is uh, at Goodbye Petrushka Film. 
And that would be the best place to go. If you follow it on there, we post pretty much everything. And uh, Facebook as well, Goodbye Petrushka. Actually, you know, Facebook pages, like professional pages are also attached to an app. So it's also Goodbye Petrushka Film, but you should find it just by typing in. And it's P-E-T-R-U-S-H-K-A, Petrushka. Rolls off the tongue like native Russian. Petrushka. (laughs) It means parsley. (laughs) Doesn't really. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Well, I did find out that Tebow meant brave. Thibault means brave. Yeah. Yes. I met a dog named Thibault yesterday. I was all excited. And then they said it's T-I-B-O. I was like, oh, different Thibault. <laughs> <laughs> brave, no doubt. Brave doggy, for sure. <laughs> well, you had also mentioned uh, that you've already got a second feature yeah. underway. Uh, when will that be uh, delivered to the world? Oh, gosh. I, I and and how, how, how different in tone and tempo and so forth is uh, it from, uh, from Goodbye Petushka? Well, uh, tempo is always sort of dictated by the edit. I think the tone is somewhat similar, but a little gentler because it's a more of a family comedy than, a, um, oh, whatever it is Petrushka is, which, as you said, it deals with uh, slightly more adult themes and uh, in places, although it's pretty PG. Right. This one is more PG. Um, its name is Magnetosphere. It has nothing to do with X-Men. Yeah, Magnetosphere is actually a, well, I'll get back to what that is, but uh, in outer space, it has a definition. But um, It has actually to do with a young girl who has uh, a neurodivergence called synesthesia, which is where the senses, yeah, senses are crisscrossed. And um, without getting too deeply into that, because I could go on for a day about all the different manifestations of synesthesia, uh, the most important thing here is going to be the cinematography. So seeing the world through this, uh, kid's eyes and, you know, there's a message here, which is don't pathologize differences, but there's also something else that's really important here, which is that it's a comedy because synesthesia isn't a disease. It isn't a disability. It's not even really a disadvantage, but if you have different perception from the rest of the world and you don't know what's going on with you, that could be really, um, jarring, especially, you know, day-to-day um, involvement with things like school and work. You don't know what's going on with you. That can be, that can be a trip. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll be interested in seeing how you, uh, how you translate that to the visual uh, realm. It's well, uh, the, the point is a good cinematographer always. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, this yeah. has been a great conversation. Uh, we have yeah. been talking with Nicola Rose, who is the writer and director and producer and editor of a really charming film called Goodbye Petrushka. Did I say that correctly? I hope so. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And it can be found right now on a bunch of streaming services. So uh, Amazon Prime among them. I believe you said Tubi also. Yes, Tubi uh, so, in many places. Yeah. So go out and find it and uh, leave a review, a positive one, if you can. Because you should. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been a pleasure. 